Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. When editor Jim Page recently tweeted about getting fired for requesting a single mental health day, Let's just say it caught a lot of people's attention, including mine. Depression, long work hours, and burnout are all too common in the entertainment industry. And the gig economy and being a freelancer, it frankly instills fear and insecurity in many creative professionals like us, leaving us feeling undervalued and pressured to outperform and outlast, because frankly, the next guy is just going to take our job if we don't. My own experience with burnout has led me to start the Optimizer Coaching and Mentorship Program so that I could start to teach people to take positive steps towards healthier lifestyles and improved working conditions. And after seeing Jim's tweet, I knew that I had to have this guy on the show to talk about this topic and his experiences. Jim Page has been editing for 15 years in the UK, and he has cut features, shorts, documentaries, and many other types of media. His work includes the feature The Pugilist, which was nominated for the Michael Powell Award at the Edinburgh Film Festival, while his short film No More Wings won Best Film at Tribeca and Haircut was long listed for a bathtub. Like many creatives, Jim is passionate about his work and he takes pride in what he does. However, the burden of what is called the passion tax often becomes too much to bear without sacrificing physical and mental well-being. Jim and I today discuss ways in which creatives can take action on their own behalf and embrace the power of saying the most important word in the freelancer's language, no. If you have ever felt like the long hours are not worth the toll on your happiness and your health, then this episode will inspire you to take control of your career and bring your life back into some semblance of balance. Not to mention helping you learn how to set boundaries for yourself, even if those boundaries might cost you a gig. All right, without further ado, my conversation with editor Jim Page. I'm here today with Jim Page, who is a film and television editor in England, and you have worked for 15 years now cutting features, shorts, and documentaries. And most importantly, according to Twitter and in your profile, you say that people definitely should not be following you because you're lost. And even more importantly, your personality is akin to the sound of an ironing board opening. One of my favorite Twitter profiles I've ever read. So on that note, Jim, it's great to have you here on the show today. It's a it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm stoked because I've been a you know a follower of you for a long time, and uh, I'm literally sat in front of a a standing desk because of you. You're one of the the people who kind of helped me with that. So I love it. Well, that that, that means a lot to me, and I think we're going to prove to people that your personality is indeed not like the sound of an ironing board opening because that is yes, one of the worst things ever. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit. I used to describe myself as an award losing editor because I just thought that was funny. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Well, because so many people call themselves an award winning whatever. And 
I just thought it was just funnier to do it the other way around. But uh, then someone said, oh, you shouldn't do that because it makes you look like you, you're a loser. And I said, well, I think the people who get it, get it. And if they don't, they're probably not the people I want to work with anyway. So Exactly. And that, that, that speaks a lot to your, your courage and your authenticity. And I'm a big believer that if you're authentic about the energy you put out into the world, you're going to attract like-minded people. And the ones that would be offended by you saying award losing, you don't want to work with those people anyway because they don't have your sense of humor. No, exactly. So on that note of being courageous about things, I want to talk to the audience today about what actually brought us together. Um, oddly enough, you had been following the the podcast and the blog, like you said, for years and um, were aware of the work that I was doing. And we had actually gone back and forth and emailed a couple of times in the past. But what specifically brought you to my attention was a Twitter post that you put up that went, I don't want to say viral, but kind of semi-viral and was certainly shared a lot more frequently than maybe many of your other social media posts. And I saw it and immediately after reading it, I sent a message to my team on Slack and I said, we need to talk to this guy. And here you are. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the beginning of this post because it is an entire thread, but I'm going to kind of read the impetus of this conversation that's going to really drive what you and I are going to talk about today. And you said in the beginning of this post, and by the way, I'm going to create a link in the show notes so somebody can go to this Twitter post and read the entire thread and see all the responses. I really think it's valuable. Uh, but the beginning of the conversation starts as such. I'm scared to say this publicly, but I feel that I need to. Recently, I was fired from a show on a major TV channel because I needed a day off for mental health reasons. I made the mistake of being honest instead of pretending to have a physical sickness. They said they couldn't trust me despite me having a long track record for almost 16 years. This is the fourth time it's happened and I'm really tired. It's made me want to leave the industry. As a freelancer in film and TV, I have no real employment rights. So let's just get right into it. I just, I like to find the wound and put the knife in and twist. So we might as well just start right away. Talk to me about what brought you to the point that you posted this on Twitter. Well, I mean, I'll try not to be too kind of elongated about it, but I've had mental health problems since I was about 14, which is now 24 years. Um, and so like my whole kind of journey to this point has been quite difficult in, in a few different ways. And I've always found, I kind of feel a little bit like I've been stuck Stimmied by stymied, stimmied by condition. But I, you know, I've, I've I've created a pretty decent career. I think I've been working consistently. I pay my bills through doing this. But I've always felt like I'm sort of fighting against it. And one of those things I realised earlier on was it wasn't a good idea to be kind of honest about this stuff because I've felt kind of pushback from companies and I felt an uncomfortableness about it. But there's been a few occasions where I needed to kind of say to, out loud to people, look, I just need some time here. And some companies, like a couple of companies I've worked for, have been lovely. But unfortunately, literally four times it's happened where I've had, like, for instance, I was going to do a documentary series for four months and they found out through a Twitter post that I was had depression and they cancelled my contract because they didn't want to take the risk. That's what the production manager said to me. And I said to her, well, over the course of four months, you can't risk me having a day or two off. No, apparently not. And I've had it on a couple of little things, but this was going to be, I think, a big break for me, this particular show. And it hurt so much when it happened that I just thought, well, at this point, what's the worst that can kind of happen? You know, with the whole lockdown thing, I'm very isolated. It's difficult to communicate these things. I'm sitting here, you know, in the first place, I've got this illness anyway, but then I get the, the news that I'm fired and then I've, it turns out that I'm not able to get medical treatment, like therapy treatment for another six to eight months. So I thought, sod it, why don't I just write out how I feel on, on Twitter? And yeah, and it sort of blew up. I think like half a million people have seen it. It's had thousands of comments and it kind of, I think it's, struck a nerve with, you know, a few people. But what I'm hoping that you recognize immediately from how quickly this went out there is that you're not alone. However, I know that ironically, when you deal with mental health issues, that's the only thing you feel is I am alone in this. I'm all by myself. And I'm hoping that you at least see from the reaction to this, that you are not the exception, that you are the rule. Yeah, it was interesting because I had literally hundreds of messages, emails from people who I would never, ever have guessed would be in that position. And maybe that's me being naive, but lots of people saying, oh, you're really brave to post this. I, you know, I feel exactly the same, but I wouldn't, wouldn't feel... Uh, able to, um, which sort of scared me really, because you think if you're doing something brave, then that's probably 
you know, if you're being called brave, then you're probably doing something a bit dangerous. And I've, I'm in sort of two minds about it, really. But it was remarkable, the number of people, you know, very, from, from people within the industry, but also people outside, people just sort of sending support and, and you know, repeating, the, you know, retweeting it. And it sounds terrible to say that the misery of other people was quite heartening, but uh, it was in, in a funny kind of way, because it made me, yeah, it made me feel less alone. But it was also kind of quite disturbing that so many people in our industry were feeling this way, but felt they couldn't say anything. Yeah, and I've gone through the exact same process that you're going through where I had that realization as well, where I too have been struggling with mental health issues and anxiety and depression and ADD and all of these things since about my early to mid 20s. And again, you work in a small dark room all by yourself, you assume there's something wrong with me. Everybody else seems to have it figured out. They're all getting work and they're all successful. There's something wrong with me. And I just decided at a certain point, I need to I need to get this out there and I just need to talk about it. Started my little podcast and wrote something about it and bam, the article about burnout went viral. And it was the same thing. Like everybody's like, oh my God, I deal with this too. And I was like, holy crap, it's not just me. But yeah, it was scary to put that out there because my first thought was, if anybody that I am ever going to work with sees this, I'm never getting hired again. And I know that's also one of your fears and one of the things you acknowledged in your post. Yeah, I mean, I think, as I said, I'm in two minds about it, really, because as I said, there's lots of people who are in touch with me, like the big union over here, the head of that kept got in touch with me, the big broadcast magazine over here, uh, one of the daily newspapers, wanted to do an interview with me but what the people who were sort of conspicuously absent from the people who got in touch with me were producers and directors and people at production companies so all the people who were kind of supportive were on my side of the line the people who were affected by this they weren't in a position to change things and so I think I said in the thread that you know, it's lovely getting lots of people being lovely and nice and, you know, uh, it's time to talk and people being open and honest. But until people who are in a position to actually make allowances and kind of adjust things, it's a bit like saying we want to employ people with wheel in wheelchairs but not building a ramp into the building. Until the actual practical stuff is changed, things aren't going to – it's just it's – just, kind words, things aren't going to change. There has to almost be legislation to uh, to kind of sort it out, or it has to be some sort of self-policing thing. But the, one, of the, I think one of the issues is basically everyone's freelance in film and TV. Everyone feels disposable. It's a massively oversubscribed industry. So there's always this feeling that, well, if I don't do it, someone else will do it. And in this country, I don't know what it's quite, I think it's different in, in America, but in this country, there's no real union for kind of protection. You can't walk off the job. You if you walk off the job, someone else will do it. And so, yeah, so I've definitely wondered, like, I wonder who has seen it, but isn't saying anything. And has just made a mental note and said, well, he's not someone. And also, I, you know, I'm one of the reasons I turned down these newspaper interviews was I don't want to be Jim the mentally ill editor. You know what I mean? I don't want to be... <laughs> I know exactly what that feels I, like. I don't want to be branded with that because it's part of me, but it's not all of me. You know, it's really tricky to kind of to navigate that kind of thing. And I guess ultimately I'll never know what, you know, what impact it's had negatively, I suppose. But I didn't really feel like I had... In the moment, at least, I didn't feel like I had a choice. I just felt like I had to say something. Right. Uh, well, the, the first thing that I want to get into, there's a couple of things I want to dig into deeper. The first of which is this idea that you said that there's kind of like this line. And all the people that are doing what I'm doing, all the support was there and I've been there too. And that's such BS and all that. But then when it comes to the directors and the producers, crickets. What frustrates me so much is that I know for a fact that the directors and the producers and the executives, they're all struggling with the same issues. Yeah, yeah. But they're still at a point where they're too terrified to bring it out there in the public because ultimately they're the ones that are quote unquote above the line and they're making a lot of the decisions and I think they need to project a position of strength, but they're no different than us. They're still human beings. They still have mental health issues. But I think that because there's the divide between above and below, oh yeah, well the, the below the line people, it's okay for them to share that. But if I'm making the decision as the director, they still don't have the courage to share or the producers or the executives. I think it's still the, the way that uh, the politics are on their end of the business, that level of acceptance isn't quite there yet. And I think that there's still some level of hiding it in, in our side of the business because we don't want to get hired. But I, at least what I feel like has changed over the last maybe five to 10 years is that amongst ourselves, we're not hiding it anymore. Where it used to be, 
I can't share with other assistants or other editors or other below the line people that I'm dealing with this. Now we're all sharing it with each other, but it hasn't kind of, you know, crossed the line to where we're all in this together as humans. Right now we're all in this together as, as editors per se, right? And crossing that line, that's where the difference happens because yeah, we're not ultimately making the decisions. What I would like to also go into a little bit deeper, if you're willing, just so people better understand your situation and can better relate to it, because uh, ultimately I want to walk away with this, not with solutions, because I don't know if there are solutions quite yet, but just what what actions can we take to start to make the, the smallest bit of difference in movement forwards? But I think an important step to doing that is to better understand what you really have been battling. So you don't have to divulge anything super crazy personal, but I know that my experiences are going to be different than your experiences, are going to be different than somebody else's experiences listening. But at the same time, I think we can all relate to similarities. So when you say that you've been dealing with mental health issues since 14, do you mind painting a little bit clearer picture of some of those mental health issues and how they've impacted your ability to actually do the work that you need to do? Yeah, sure. I mean, I was kind of a straight A student at school, top of my class, and then sort of the bottom just sort of dropped out when I was 14. And I suddenly sort of lost all my confidence, all my will to live, I mean, literally. Uh, and I left school early and I really didn't know what I was going to do. I had severe depression, severe, severe anxiety, you know, suicide attempts, all the kind of, you know, all the fun stuff. I eventually went to do an IT course at a college, like a local IT course. And I looked around the room and I thought, like there was all these guys in polyester shirts with clip-on ties and they bought briefcases and they got nothing in them. And I just thought, this is not the world I want to live in. You know, growing up, I always wanted to be creative, what I wanted to, you know, do all that kind of things. I just didn't have the confidence. And then someone I knew was going to do a media course and I went along to see if I could get in. The kind of admissions officer met me, chatted to me for a while. And even though I didn't have any qualifications, she sort of went on my predicted grades and said well, you're clearly capable of doing this. You just need a chance. So she gave me a chance to kind of go into it. And I fell in love with it. You know, it was a really big changing point and it really helped me with my confidence, but also it just, it it felt right. You know, it felt like it fitted. And all the way through college, you know, we build this kind of relationship with people and, you know, changing your personality, you know, you know, adjusting your confidence, you know, and there were ups and downs during college, but it was, it really wasn't until I left college and went kind of went into the real world I had a bit of a breakdown after leaving because we'd become this little community and then we just kind of left. Um, some of us, we didn't keep in touch. And so there was a really kind of quite difficult kind of process. But I was kind of relentless. So I would work on anything and I would do, any, you know, I started off doing wedding videos or corporates or drive 200 miles to do like a 10-minute a, a job and drive back, you know, just because I wanted to get the experience, wanted to do the work uh, and get better at what I was doing. But of course, sometimes when you have depression, it's really difficult to get out of bed. And if you are self-sufficient, living on your own, as I was, you haven't got any safety net. You know, if you don't go to work, you don't get paid. And so it was very, very hard. And there were a bunch of jobs which I knew, which I just sort of didn't do. And unfortunately, let people down because it got to that day where I just couldn't, couldn't face leaving the room, much less the house. And it's been a long journey since that point of similar kind of feelings. Uh, you know, sometimes you can be working on something and be really into it, and then suddenly the ground just sort of falls away and you you feel like, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? Nothing matters. And in the past, you have to hide it from the person you're working with. So, so you can kind of be, you know, staring at a computer screen and they think you're working, but you're actually going, I want to die, I want to die, I want to die, I don't want to be here, I can't do this. But, you're, but you turn to them and say, hey, you ready to do that thing? And you kind of have to put this kind of classic mask on to do it. And I think a lot of people were really, really surprised when they found out I had mental illness because I'm quite gregarious and friendly and loud. <laughs> and so, you know, but they didn't realize that I'd got this sort of duality to, to what was going on. And so, yeah, so there were lots of kind of occasions over the, over time where, frankly, I, you know, I let a few people down and because I wasn't able to tell them what was wrong and, you know, I'd make up an excuse, but then that excuse would get stretched too thin. And it was all because I was too embarrassed or too ashamed or too frightened to kind of tell someone, this is what's wrong with me. Partially because of the kind of, you know, the, maybe the personal ego side of it, but also because I was really worried that I was going to alienate employers and I wasn't in a position then to kind of go, 
well, I don't want to work for them or don't want to work for them. You know, it, it, it was, I was just taking anything, you know, and I had that kind of constant panic. And that was the other thing. I was doing things that I didn't necessarily want to do, but I was so worried that, well, if I don't do this, then what happens if I get ill for like two months? Then I won't have any money. And, you know, and so it just becomes this pressure cooker, really. So, yeah, so that's kind of, and I'm better able at dealing with it. And I've worked for some companies who've been, you know, very understanding and let me have a few days off or just taken me off a project and said, you can come back another time. Other companies who've said that and then not done it, of course. And then there are other companies who just basically said, we're not going to employ you again. And it's been a difficult thing dealing with because you have this kind of feeling of where you want to be and what you want to do. And it feels a little bit like you're, being held back by yourself, by your own mind, really. And it, sometimes it's difficult to know when it's going to happen or, and often why, you know, sometimes it'll have no kind of precipitating event or anything. So knowing all of the, the challenges and the struggles that you've been through over the years, managing and keeping jobs and having been let go from this one or that one, um, I want to dive into this one job specifically that precipitated this Twitter post. And I want you to be super crazy honest about this. If you had taken that one day off of work, if instead of firing you, they had said, okay, you can have it, what would the ramifications have been to the project? Nothing. It wouldn't have made a difference. I kind of had a feeling that was going to be the answer. Uh, and I think unless you're doing breaking news or like a really fast turnaround thing that has to be done tomorrow, a day here or there is not going to make a difference. And ultimately, they they had to find someone else anyway. So it wasn't like, and I, and I said to them, look, you know, I'm happy to work in the weekend or come in, in, in the evening. You know, they've been super, super positive beforehand. You, you know, I'm really grateful for you coming on board. You know, we're really looking forward to working with you. And actually, it's funny, I remember the moment, I actually initially just said I was ill. I didn't say anything about what it was. And they said, okay, that's fine, no problem. But it changed when I said mentally ill, because what happened was they said, they emailed me back and said, it's not COVID, is it? And me to kind of, you know, assuage their issues, I said, oh, no, 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 it's not COVID. I just have some mental illness issues. But it went completely quiet. And then that afternoon, my agent got a phone call saying, we're not bringing him back. And they ended up ringing me and saying, look, we just, you know, we can't trust that you're going to come in tomorrow. And I said, well, I've told you I'm going to come in tomorrow. I know at this point how I'm feeling and, you know, I'm 16 years into this now. I know whether I'm able to or not able to do these things. Ultimately, isn't it kind of incumbent on you to give me the chance to come in, you know, to come in and, and do the job? You know, you're not losing anything because you're going to have to hire someone else anyway. So it's not like you've got more days. You know, the time isn't stretched. And they just said, no, I'm sorry, we're just not going to take the risk on you. Sorry. And it was, you know, devastating. But yeah, it wouldn't have made a difference. You know, a day here or there just doesn't matter on these things because you, and I, and I'm, they accidentally kept me in the loop on the email chain. And I think they were, they were editing like a week over the schedule anyway. And this is one of the things I said in the tweet is that schedules change all the time. And I totally understand from their point of view, you know, you hire someone as an editor, everything flows through you. If you're not there, sometimes it's difficult to get anything done. But the schedule changes all the time. And you have to adapt to that. But if you want to change the schedule, then there's no adaptation at all. And something like this just wouldn't have mattered to have a day or, or even if I'd had two days off, it wouldn't have changed anything. But their schedule and their time and their panic over the whole thing, you know, it was so wound so tightly, which I think is an industry thing. Everyone's wound so tightly about everything that, you know, they, they just felt like they hadn't got the flexibility. You know, the, I'm sure you've had this, the number of times where, you know, I've gone into an edit, edit and they'll say, oh, it's a 10-week edit. We've absolutely got to do 10 weeks. And you look at it and go, well, this is going to be about 12 weeks, I think. And they say, no, 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 we're booking for 10 weeks. And then you get to like week nine and they go, yeah, are you available for like two more weeks? It's just such a short-sighted kind of way of looking at everything. And everyone's so wound up and so tight and worried that actually the problem becomes the problem. Like the, the stress of not being able to say anything and of getting everything, you know, everything's got to be done right now is actually makes things worse. And I think one of the bigger issues is as creative people, we're naturally sensitive. You kind of have to be to do this job, but there's no allowance made for people for the kind of the other stuff that comes with that. You know, there's no kind of, you know, they obviously they want the benefits of creative people, of people who are sensitive and able to kind of communicate things, but they don't want the downsides, I suppose. And there's no understanding that, okay, someone might not be able to work on the railroads for, for six months, but they can still contribute a huge amount if you allow them to be able to have the environment to do that, you know. So it's, 
it's very frustrating. Very frustrating. Well, talking about the analogy of the railroad, for example, it would be no different than saying we want you to to bend over every single day, all day, and hammer these stakes in and build this railroad. But I'm not going to accept the fact that you're backwards. Like, yeah, come on. exactly. Like, really, you've got lower back problems. I'm just going to find somebody else to get hammer the stake in the ground. And it's just this endless uh, loop. Just this people on a treadmill put you in here. I get the best out of you. Oh, you're burned out. You're depressed. Okay, cool. I'm going to replace you with another one. And the way that the freelance world is structured, they can do that. They can get away with it. Because as you know, one of the greatest fears we have as freelancers is if I'm not going to do it, there are 50 other people that'll take my job tomorrow morning. Yeah, yeah. My sincerest apologies for the interruption. But if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from Ergo Driven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're going to invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the topo mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the topo mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. And I, one of the stories that someone who contacted me after the tweet was, they said that they were in a job where someone killed themselves and then their replacement killed themselves two years later because that job was so stressed and so highly, again, wound so tight. And there wasn't even like a mention from the company. You know, they, they didn't even kind of have a day off for everybody to deal with it or anything. It was just like, oh, well, let's hope we have a better day tomorrow. Do you not realize someone killed themselves because of your environment? Twice. And twice, twice, exactly, yeah. And of course, you know, of course, these are kind of isolated incidents to an extent. But everybody, I think pretty much every company, there's kind of a boiling point of stress and everyone is sort of bubbling under the surface or a lot of people are bubbling under the surface and okay it might not boil over in that way but you know it's it's still causing tremendous problems for for seemingly thousands of people millions of people across the world maybe but it doesn't feel like anything practical is actually happening to change it yeah and i would agree with that that i think there are uh, there are a lot of steps that could happen like you said i love the analogy i've never heard this before of we want to accept people with physical disabilities in wheelchairs but bring your own ramp like we're not going to build a ramp for you, right? Like that, I, I very much see that mentality in the corporate world. And I think that there's there are a lot of acknowledgements and a lot of things that need to happen on the, the corporate side, the studio side, the business side to acknowledge that these things exist and they're part and parcel with highly creative people. But at the same time, the other thing I want to acknowledge that I think is a really hard reality for people in our position is that some of the responsibility lies on our shoulders. And one of the th one of the things that I talk about with my students all the time is understanding the difference between fault and responsibility because people think they're synonyms. Well, it's not my fault that I've got depression. Probably isn't. You were probably born with it. I'm wired with it. You're wired with it. Um, it's not something as simple as, well, just be happy tomorrow. Like, just get some sleep over the weekend. Wake up on Monday and be happy. Like, it's really not that hard. It's like saying to somebody with diabetes, well, just make insulin. 
Come on, what's wrong with you? Just make more insulin and manage your blood sugar. Doesn't work that way. But I still believe it's our responsibility to acknowledge that we have this form of mental disability and we have to put ourselves in a position where we can manage it and it becomes an asset to us and working with uh, whatever team or whatever project it is, it's not going to slow down or hinder that project, right? So one of the things that you talk about that I heard you mention in a a previous uh, podcast is this idea that we need to find a middle ground. And if I have a broken leg and I'm a freelance firefighter, I can't expect people to hire me at their fire station to put out fires tomorrow because I can't do the job. Of course. Right. But at the same time, when we look at your circumstance, realistically, there was no reason that they should have let you go. If it had been breaking news and they had said the biggest story of the year comes out tomorrow and you said, sorry, guys, mental health day. I think they have a legitimate reason to replace you. That's one of the reasons why I don't take on fast turnaround stuff. And I first started, I was like, no, I can do that very quickly. And then I'd, and that was the incidents, you know, the few incidents where I'd let people down because I'd overpromised and not been honest with myself about what I could take on. But these days I'm much more conservative about schedules and I'll say, look, I can do it in this amount of time. And I build in that downtime, I suppose, to, to the projects that I, I start. But yeah, I, you know, I, I, I would never take on something now that I feel like I couldn't, you know, that the stress would be too much. And I, and I don't, like I said in my tweet, I totally get it. You've got a schedule. You, you can't just sit around going, oh, I'll get on with it next week. You know, you've got to get on with these things. And there's mi- often multi-million pounds, you know, dealing and dollars, obviously, at stake and everything flows through you. And there's all this kind of, you know, there's this pressure that you have to kind of try and ignore. And they have a responsibility to all those people and to the company. And so it's not so much that, you know, I want to be able to say, well, I want to be able to work two days a week and then we'll get the thing done in a year. It's not about that. It's just about making slight adjustments that will have a big effect uh, in the long run, I think. And I think an example of you taking responsibility is knowing I'm not a good fit for projects that are a fast turnaround. Exactly. Maybe that's the favorite thing on the planet that you want to edit are fast turnaround projects, but you realize I'm being irresponsible if I put myself up for those and I don't tell them about my mental health issues and then I don't deliver. That's an example of taking responsibility. And I think a lot of people aren't doing that. I think a lot of people are just saying, you need to accommodate all of my needs and work around me. Nobody's going to do that. Nobody has the money or the time to do that. But this was not the, the, the case with this company. I believe that if you really dig down to the deepest, darkest depths of why they fired you, it was the fear of uncertainty. It wasn't that you were unavailable tomorrow. It's can we trust this guy in the future now that we know he's got mental health problems? And that to me is wrong because you were proving yourself and you needed one day off. Yeah, I think it's part of a general kind of feeling, though, isn't it? Is that we, even though as a society, we have become much more aware, much more sympathetic, there's a difference between going, oh, that's a shame, and actually being open about changing things. Uh, And I keep coming back to it, is this idea that until you make practical changes and actually have practical attitude changes um, where you don't see someone as weak if they've got mental illness, you might be, you know, you can be sympathetic and empathetic and still think that someone's weak and not reliable, you know, and maybe there are some people like that. I mean, I imagine there's a lot of people who kind of, uh, you know, are, are not able to hold down a you know job, and there's a sliding scale, of course. There are certain people who've got really severe kind of uh, you know schizophrenia. They're going to struggle, really struggle, and they're going to have really, really difficult times to get any kind of backing from from companies. Um, and then there's people like me who are sort of in the middle, I suppose, who have bad times and have better times. And like you say, I would never expect a live TV show or a news show or something to get to do it. And it took me a while to come to that conclusion and to make myself realize it's a bit like when you realize I'm never going to be an astronaut I'm never going to be a footballer it's like I'd love to do it but I don't have the skills I don't have the tools and once you're honest about that I think I think it's good and I think maybe it's a societal problem anyway at the moment where people try and blame other people for their own issues and so I don't want this to come across as a poor me you know obviously it's not my fault that I'm in this situation but it is my responsibility to deal with it and handle it and that's what I tried to do. And and that's why I was honest with them. And I said to them, look, I've got this issue. I will be in tomorrow. It wasn't me going, oh, I hope I'll be in tomorrow. And I'll just tell them, you know, I will be in tomorrow. That's fine. I just know I need a few hours to kind of to deal with this. But they weren't able to make that leap. And I think that's quite prevalent. I think there's a lot of people who still think, 
well, once you've crossed that line, there's no way of coming back from it. And it's sort of a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is, really. Because, you know, people go, oh, mentally ill equals crazy and erratic and unreliable. And, and of course, there's a certain element to that, but it's, it's much more complicated than that. And I think until those kind of wider kind of attitudes change, it's difficult because I want to be kind of hopeful about it and I want to be, you know, helpful to other people. But I, I don't feel much hope about how it's going to change. I'm, I'm not sure, like, whether there is actually any real impetus for people to change things, uh, which is not, you know, not a great podcast subject, how everything's crap and it's going to stay crap. But, you know, that's kind of how I feel, I think. Right. And I can understand that very much so. And I felt that way for a while, too, when I really started to go through this. And uh, this was, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago now when I was editing my first feature film and really was very intimately introduced to massive burnout and suicidal depression and the realization that this is what I wanted to be and do with my entire life. And now I can't, quote unquote, hack it. Oh, I'm just not good enough for this. And it's beat me down and everybody else seems to have this figured out. And I'm just, I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm too weak to be an editor. And I very much could have quit. But then I also realized there, there are a lot of things to lead to me being in this position that I do have control over, some of which I don't. And I think that if we just focus on waiting for the industry to change and waiting for producers and directors and corporations to accept mental health issues, that can be really depressing in and of itself, and it creates a vicious cycle. Yeah. So I'm a big believer in focusing on what we can control, we can which, is, yeah. which is why I like to think about this idea of fault versus responsibility. Not my fault I'm here. It's my responsibility to learn more about it and better manage it. And I think another area to tap into that a lot of people don't tap into, and I think you even alluded to this as well, is that one of the things, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things that seems to exacerbate some of the mental health issues for you personally is you just don't enjoy or feel connected with the work that you're doing. Have you experienced that more than once where you're like, why am I even cutting this? Like, who gives a crap about this story or this person or whatever it is? And here, this is what I do. This is what I wake up to be all day long is tell this story. Like, that can be depressing, can it not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I it's weird. I got to a point a couple of years ago where I, I basically stack up projects. So all the time, I'd have five or six things going on, partly because I just wanted to keep working and getting better and all the rest of it, but also partly because I was kind of afraid to not work and afraid of the kind of the quiet times but I was doing stuff that I didn't you know I didn't, often didn't really care about and diverting my attention and burning myself out and I just made a decision at one point just to go I'm just not going to do stuff I'm going to turn things down I know that sounds crazy but it's like like I I've turned down five or six things already this year which might be good but I just don't feel it just don't feel don't care about it and because I realized that my time especially someone with mental illness but anyone I think is a finite resource and I've only got so much bandwidth in my head to deal with these things. And if I pile, if I'm dealing, and so I want to be spending that bandwidth on the things I care about. Um, because ultimately, if I'm working on stuff that I don't care about, then what we do is so personal. And so, you know, uh, so we're so interconnected. And sometimes, like, I, I certainly feel sometimes that my self-esteem is wrapped up a lot in what I do. So if you're doing something that you think is crap, then you're going to feel crap about yourself, aren't you? So I've definitely made adjustments in that way to kind of make sure that I'm not working on stuff. And of course, there's always things where you think, well, it's not brilliant, but, you know, got to pay the rent and all that kind of stuff. But um, I'm much more selective about that. And that's difficult, I think, when you're starting out. But I think you, the one of the things you want to do is try and get to a point. It's weird in a way. You want to kind of get to a point where you work less, but work on work specifically on things that you care about. Yeah, I think that that's ultimately what everybody wants in any creative industry is I just want to work on the stuff that really drives me, that I'm passionate about, telling a story or creating an image or evoking a feeling that resonates with me so I can give that feeling to other people. But on the flip side, there's bills. Got to pay yeah. the bills, right? Mm -hmm. And I always make it very clear to my students and anybody listening or that I talk to or give advice, there is no shame in taking a paycheck job. If it's something that you totally hate and it's not your thing and it's even content that you wouldn't want to tell your friends about, but you have to pay the bills to survive, zero shame. You should not feel guilt. However, I think a lot of people are taking those paycheck jobs when they shouldn't be because they're simply afraid of not working, which it sounds like for a certain period of time, you are succumbing to that same fear. And you know, I shouldn't be taking this, but I'm too afraid to say no. Yeah, absolutely. And I've always hated the expression selling out because I always feel like, 
you don't know what position people are in and to be able to tell someone you know oh you shouldn't you should be unemployed uh, because it makes me feel bad it makes me kind of furious when you hear these kind of music artists or like you know bob dylan going electric it's like why should you tell bob dylan what he wants to do like he wants to do this thing it's not selling out it's buying in really it's doing what you need to do to kind of keep your life going but yeah i mean yeah i definitely went through a long period of just doing anything and you know i've done loads and loads of work and if you go on my website you can see i've done you know corporates and commercials and documentary series and features and short films and tv just done loads and loads of things people always go bloody hell how how, how have you done so much work and it's because i've just been relentless for like 15 years just doing everything whilst also dealing with these issues and i think it's only in the last couple of years really that i've really been able to get a handle on it almost became the problem that i was working too much and that was exacerbating things. And I'm, you know, I, I've got a lot better than I used to be at saying no, at self-care. You know, and I, I definitely need need more help to do that, I think. But but the impetus is there. You know, do you know what I mean? It, it's there for me personally. I think that's really important yeah. for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And I do talking about this idea of self-care. This is another thing that I bring up often is when somebody's going to say yes to an opportunity, I always ask them the question, yeah, but what are you saying no to in return? Because you're not going to get it all. And it sounds like for you, you say yes to an opportunity to pay the bills. And what you're saying no to is your mental health and you having the time and energy to be able to take care of yourself in return, which ultimately brings us back full circle to this idea of responsibility. It's I believe it's our responsibility to bring the best version of ourselves to a job. And we're doing somebody a disservice if we're just taking it for the paycheck and we're not connected with it at all. And we're going to give them 50 percent. We're not going to be in a great mood. And yeah, fine. I'll go through the motions and I'll deliver on deadline. You're not doing them a service. And it's your responsibility to make sure you're choosing opportunities that are not only best for you, but best for other people. And that's scary because sometimes you have to say no to something. It definitely is. And and it was something I just couldn't do initially. But what I realized was I wasn't creating space for myself to be well. I was just kind of filling all the time I had with just projects and doing stuff that I wasn't necessarily caring about. And yeah, I did feel guilty sometimes because I think to myself, well, this, you know, for this person, it's their entire life, this whole, this project. And for me, I sort of actively don't like it. And I, you know, I don't want to be involved, but I'm here because... You know, I've got to keep my my rent paid and all the rest of it. But yeah, it's just, but it's a scary thing to say no to something because you think, you know, but when's the next thing going to happen? And you just have to kind of, someone used the phrase back yourself to me um, a little while ago. I thought, yeah, that's the thing you've got to do. You kind of got to have a bit of confidence and think something will come along. You know, you've put enough effort in now, something will come along. Or, you know, maybe you will reach out to something else, you know, but you wouldn't be able to do that if you were spending your time you know, doing stuff you didn't care about, you know, you've got to kind of, but I mean, it's literally as simple. I mean, this sounds kind of silly, but like literally just going out for a walk every day for me is massively helpful, uh, not just for my physical health, which is deteriorated, but just mentally being able to go outside. And I used to just go, well, I'm not, not going to do that. I just need to work. But now I'm like, no, this is a hard line. And I've worked with directors who are like, oh, should we just get a sandwich and come back to work? No, I'm not doing, not going to eat at my desk. I'm not going to do, you know, this is what I need to look after myself. And for a long time, self-care felt like a really weird experience. You know, you should love yourself. You should care for yourself. Felt weird. I don't know if that's a British thing or not, but... Oh, know, no, that's a, a very the, universal thing. All the is, same is issues it, over here. Yeah, there was just a resistance to kind of like, you know, trying to help myself. And it took me a while to go, well, no, you know, ultimately mental health is physical health, isn't it? And if I'm not looking after myself physically and I'm not kind of separating myself a little bit from my work, then I'm not going to be able to sustain that. And that's what's happened. You know, there's been a couple of times when I've had quite big kind of drops and just kind of had to stop doing it for a little while because, you know, I burnt myself out. And, uh, and so I'm much more careful these days. And that's what was so frustrating about this whole situation was I didn't feel like I was in the bottom of a giant well. I just felt like I just need a day off to maintain and keep going. You know, I didn't, I wasn't, it wasn't like, oh my God, the world's collapsing. It was just, I need a bit of time off today and then I'll carry on and everything will be fine. And so for it to happen again after doing all this kind of personal work was really frustrating, you know. 
I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat, and I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Well, for me, I think the ironic thing about all of this is that we get paid for our ideas and our knowledge. It's we're, we're, it, I think this all comes back from this idea of the industrial revolution, 18th, 19th, 20th century mentality of you're on an assembly line and you're just a drone that fulfills a certain need and you're going to do it for a certain number of hours. But that's not our job. Our job is not sit at a keyboard and press the J key every seven seconds and press the Q key every 10 seconds. And as long as you do that consistently all day long, you have a job. They need our ideas. We need to solve problems. So the most valuable thing to me to have you on my team is that you can creatively solve problems. And I'm going to put you in the absolute worst environment possible <laughs> to make it as hard for you as possible to be creative and generate ideas and be passionate about what you do. The irony of that just escapes me. And that's what I'm trying to change. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, when literally just some, the things you were talking about, you know, having a desk that is at the right height and having a chair, you know, the number of times I've walked into an office and it's just like a wooden chair that doesn't even turn or anything, no hand, no arm rest or something. You think now I'm like, can we get a new chair, please? But like 10 years ago, I'd be like, oh, I'll sit here. And then I'd be in terrible pain by the end of the day. And, you know, and it's just little things like that can make a huge difference. But then, yeah, just the, you know, working, you know, who, who in their 13th or 14th hour of working is doing their best work? You know, it's just crazy. And I can remember I did one project. And this is the other thing is I remember I did one project where they said, we absolutely have to have it to the BBC at Friday morning. The exec producer has to watch it or he's not going to be, he's going on holiday and he's not going to be able to watch it. And then it won't be able to go on TV and blah, blah, blah. So me and the producer worked for, the uh, director producer, worked for, for 36 hours straight. Literally didn't leave the room for 36 hours, apart from going to the loo. Had lunches brought to us and whatever. And by the end of it, like the 35th hour or whatever, we couldn't talk and I was just, pressing the buttons really slowly you know the stuff that if we'd if we'd just gone to bed and come back again it would have happened really really quickly but we got it done sent it off went home came back in the afternoon what did they think about it oh they didn't watch it in the end they had to do something else so they're going to watch it next week that was a real watershed moment for me because i realized if i don't look after myself then no one else is going to and so what I really respect about you and what you've been doing is you've been really encouraging people to kind of take control of their lifestyle as part of their work. So not eating at your desk, having it, you know, enforcing these kind of personal things that really help the environment, making sure that you, you know, have a window in your room and, you know, all these kind of things are just so important. They seem silly, but, you know, when you're doing it for so long, it really makes a big difference. It does. And uh, what it all comes back to, uh, to kind of circle back to something you said earlier, is the power and importance of the word no. Yeah. It's scary. And I know that a lot of people would say about both you and me, um, me specifically, because I know people have said this. Well, sure. You can say no. You edit Cobra Kai. You've been doing this for 20 years. You don't know what it's like to be in my position where I can't say no to everything. When I was 24 years old, two years into this industry, not even, probably a year and a half into the industry, I was offered a six-figure position at a trailer company, and I said no 
for a job that paid 500 bucks a week flat seven days a week to edit a feature film. And that one no changed the trajectory of my whole career because I knew that long-term, I wanted to cut long-form scripted narrative. I didn't want to work in the trailer and the promo world. And that was terrifying because finally I was going to make all this money and I was going to start working on bigger and better films. It was a new company that was recruiting me that was working on A-list Hollywood movies. And I was just like, no, this, is, this isn't who I want to be in the lifestyle that I want to lead because I know myself if I'm not – emotionally and creatively engaged with something, that is a rapid path to burnout and depression because I just, I don't like doing it. So I have to find that I'm connected with something which comes back to, I have to take responsibility for either showing up as the best version of myself or the worst version. And I would have been making sick money, hating my job, which would have made my work worse, which would have made my relationships with my coworkers very strained because they're thinking, dude, you can do this, but why do you make it so hard, right? That's part of the responsibility. It's the same for me. Um, and I, I didn't have that amount of self-awareness that new into the industry. Like I said, I was just doing anything. But I came to a point in like I was doing a lot of factual TV and, you know, I was making a lot of money doing it. I just, I it was sort of killing my soul, really, because I just did not care about it. And I felt guilty because there were people around me who really did care about it. Um, and I kind of got to a point where I thought, well, no, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to turn, start turning stuff down. And so people were, you know, I was in demand as a factual TV, you know, it's slightly different to doing documentaries. I'm st I still really love doing documentaries, but like just the kind of run of the mill kind of factual stuff. I just, I just didn't care about it. And so I made a decision that I'm going to stop saying, I'm just going to say no to these things because, and then that allowed me time and space to do more like indie films. And I started doing TV drama uh, over here. And I don't think I would, if I had stayed where I was living, where there was this production company, you know, who were all lovely people and I missed them a great deal, but it just was doing something I didn't want to do, you know. Uh, but it took me longer than it obviously took you. You know, it took me to do it and then realize that I didn't want to do it. So I'm, I'm very, um, very envious of you having that kind of foresight because uh, I definitely would have gone, oh yeah, I'll do that. It wasn't an easy decision, but if I if if I were to to reverse engineer from where I am now, um, all the way back to where I started, all of the major turning points in my career were all because I said no to something else. And I talked about this with uh, Michelle Tesoro recently, and I can put a link in the show notes for that, where she's on the biggest shows on uh, Netflix and the Queen's Gambit and all these other things, winning all the awards. But she ended up where she was because a series of very strategic no's along the way that got her to the right yeses. Same thing with me. And if you really reverse engineer a lot of people that are successful, the no's were way more important than any of the yeses. But it it, it takes courage to use the word no, right? Yeah. And I've really only had that courage in the last few years and perhaps you're right there's been a few times when things have kind of moved forward you know I've maybe made more progress in what I'm doing now than I did in the first 10 years because I've started allow creating that space for me personally but also creating that space and the time to be able to do a BBC drama even though I could fill my year with doing factual tv but like saying well I'm not going to do I've got a BBC drama in three months time I'm going to find some stuff in the meantime, but I really want to do that. So I'm not going to spend all that time. It's that bird in the hand versus two in the bush thing, isn't it? Yeah, one in the hand, two in the bush. If you really want the thing that's in the bush, then you have to you have to let go of the bird in your hand, don't you? So that's a really tortured metaphor, that is. But you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying, um, which actually sets me up perfectly for where I want to conclude our interview today, which is better understanding going forwards how we set you up for success instead of failure. And I'm going to frame it by making it very clear that I don't think you failed at this last job where you got fired. I think it's a tremendous failure of leadership and this team that didn't have the foresight to realize you're more valuable to us with one day off than if we just replace you and we start over with somebody new. So the failure, I think, is on their part with failure of leadership. But at the same time, going back to this concept of responsibility, if we really want to set you up for success going forwards, working with exactly the right people on the right projects where you can be completely authentic about the value you bring, but also the liabilities that are part of that value, what can you do going forward so you never have to worry about circumstances like this again? How do we get you started? That is, um, it's a tricky question, isn't it? It's a tricky it question. It indeed is a very tricky question, but it's the one that so many people are asking when they're in yeah, this situation. Well, and it's what I've brought up, really, is it's the practical stuff. There's a few different things. One is having 
work hours that are reasonable and not not pushing you to, to kind of stress immediately. So people going, oh, well, we, you know, you, we expect you to do 12 hours immediately. Well, how about we leave those long hours until it becomes a bit of a problem and just like do a normal day so that you can have a life outside of work and then you can bring that to your work. But the idea of like, uh, and then you kind of expand that out into maybe some, maybe you have four day weeks or four and a half day weeks to kind of allow it. Maybe you kind of lengthen the schedule by a week. You don't have to pay me more, but you can just say, well, we're going to have a bit of flexibility within that time, maybe a day here or there to know that, okay, Jim's not going to come in today. Uh, that's fine. We've allowed for that. And that's all going to be fine. And then I think it's it's also like an employer bringing that up to you rather than it being on your shoulders to kind of admit something because that's terrifying to be able to, you know, who in their right mind at this point is going to <laughs> right mind. Good, uh, good pun. Um, <laughs> yeah. Who in their right mind is going to go to an employer? Oh, by the way, I've got mental health problems. Well, that's immediately you, you know, screwed up your CV and in the bin, isn't it? So no one's going to admit it, even though a lot of people say, Oh, well, you know, you should really, you know, disclose these things. No one's going to do that. But if they bring it up to you and say, Look, you know, we're not going to ask you whether you have mental illness problems, but if you do, then we're very, you know, empathetic to that and we're here to help you and, you know, we'll bring you on board and, you know, and not as a trick question to kind of weed you out, but to actually be that. I'll give you an example. My sister is a care worker in a, in a home and they've been brilliant. They've reduced her hours. She, they, she said to them, you know, I've got this issue. I just need to deal with it a little bit. Um, and they said, that's absolutely fine. We're going to reduce your hours uh, significantly. You know, we're not going to, you know, lower your pay or anything. We're just going to reduce your hours. We're going to pay for you to have 10 sessions of therapy. And they were just so kind and so supportive that that then made her more able to get back to work. But it's this kind of constant fear that if you tell someone, then you are weak. If you tell someone, then you are unreliable, that you are somehow separate to the rest of the team. You know, that there's, oh, well, we better not uh, give Jim the good episode in case he doesn't turn up, you know, all that kind of stuff. I think it is it's a series of little things, but also the big thing really, I think, is is being able to have rights as a freelancer. And obviously it's different from country to country, but rights as a freelancer that are equal to being a staff member. If I was a staff member and I went to someone and said, look, I need a couple of days off for illness, they couldn't fire me. But as a freelancer, they can. They can just say, well, we're not going to bring you back. And until that is properly addressed and that fear of being of losing your livelihood is addressed... Um, that's really the big thing, and that, but that can that doesn't necessarily have to be the government saying that, or that can be companies saying, look, we're going to be, you know, we're going to change our attitude to this whole thing. We're not going to drive people into the ground. We're going to, you know, the, I can't remember what the name of this chap is, but there's a bloke, multi-millionaire owner of this company that reduced his salary right down and gave all of his employees kind of the same salary. Um, and change their working benefits and change their hours. And I think they work like a three or four day week. And his the productivity just shot up because suddenly everyone felt, not only did they feel kind of wanted, but they felt supported. The fear of it went away. When you're not frightened, you feel like you can do things. It's the fear that stops you from doing stuff, especially in the creative industry, where you feel like you need to do something, you need to get this done or I'm going to get fired, or, I'm going to, or things aren't going to happen. You know, it's weird that you know we work in an industry where, which is all about telling stories and communicating and the emotions, and you know, talking about the truth of humanity and all that kind of stuff. And yet, we're so we find it so difficult to do that together as a as an industry. The majority of what you just mentioned are things that are outside of your personal control. And I think that there's a really important thing that you alluded to that is within your control that's going to help you move forwards and help everybody else move forwards and at least start to affect the smallest amount of change to make this happen. And I think that's better communication because that we can control. And you're right. You can't just go into an interview yet. Maybe someday you can, but yet you can't walk in and say, I'm really excited about this project. But by the way, on a regular basis, I deal with anxiety and mental health and depression, and you're just going to have to deal with that. <laughs> nope. Like you said, you're going to be put at the bottom of the bin and they're never going to consider you. And I also don't think that a company in our, our very near future is going to say, listen, we don't know if you have mental health issues or not, but if you do, you're totally covered and taken care of. I don't think they're going to do that either. But I think there's, there's a version of communication where you can flip this a little bit and you can take control of it. And I've used this strategy before. I actually used it in my interview for Cobra Kai of all places. I didn't say to them, hey, guys. I'm not going to work long hours. 
I'm not into the nights and the weekends, and I want to have a fairly normal work schedule because otherwise, if you work me too much, I know that I'm going to get into a really bad place. I've been there before. I need to make sure that doesn't happen. I never would have said that to them. But instead, I framed it as such. I said, listen, I want to be the absolute best for this show possible. So I need to better understand what are your expectations of me? Do you guys like to give notes at 9 p.m. and you need them, you know, delivered 9 a.m. the next morning? Like, do you guys spend 14, 16 hours a day in the edit suite? Like, how does the process work? If if I need an afternoon off to go see my daughter in a recital, how do you guys handle all of that? So I got a very clear picture of what they expected of me. And they said, oh, you're kidding? No, we, we hate working long hours and we've got kids. You need to take a day off to do something with your family. Like, we're not going to, we don't want to let you miss those moments. We know how important those are. So I knew by setting that expectation and starting the conversation in the interview, I was going to be protected. It's still a hard job and it still has long hours and there are periods in the trenches. But over the long haul, they treat it like a marathon where we have to pace ourselves properly as opposed to, I want you to sprint the whole marathon just because hurry, 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 like that's the way the business works. But it's because I framed it as, I want to come in here the best that I can be. And these are kind of the non-negotiables that are going to make it hard for me to do that. And if they had said, listen, we own you, you're going to be here 24-7, I would have said no to the job. Even though I knew it was my dream gig to edit, I would have had to say no because I, I just I know the path I would have been down and I would have been setting myself up for failure, which is selfish to them because I would have set them up for failure needing to replace me anyway. So I think the one area where we can't control it and if we collectively – all learn how to do this better. We're putting ourselves in positions where we're the right fit and we're not setting unrealistic expectations and other people aren't putting them on us as well. Then you don't get to this point where they're like, oh, you need a day off. Sorry, you're out of here. That makes a lot of sense. And I think someone said to me a while ago, and I think about this a lot, is that you can't control the world around you. All you can do is control your reaction to it. That has really helped me, that kind of, that phrase, because it's allowed me to be able to kind of look at it from a, a different position and be able to say to people, to know what I am and what I'm not, be able to kind of find, like you say, find out from other people. And, that, and again, going back to the thing is, is it, that's what was so kind of frustrating about this situation was because I thought they were one way, but they weren't. But, you know, it's a lesson to learn. And um, and that's really interesting that you did that with, uh, you know, on such a high-profile thing, you know, that you have the kind of the gumption and the, you know, the, the self-confidence to be able to go, no, this is, this is kind of how I need it to be, and, but also to frame it in a way that is beneficial to them. Uh, you know, that's a kind of a, that's a leap of faith. It's always about how do, how do I provide value to these people first, but here are the expectations in return in order for me to be able to do that. I know that I can't do a great job if they just expect me to work 12-hour days every single day. I'm going to suck. I know that I'm going to suck because I've been in that position and I know how quickly I go to a place where I'm unproductive and I'm anxious and I'm irritable and I just can't generate ideas. So I know for a fact I'm wired to produce much better work for 45 hours a week than 60 hours a week. But again, industrial revolution mentality, we're paying you for 60, even though they're not, but they think they're paying us for 60. So we need to get our money's worth. That's the biggest fallacy of the way that we work as knowledge workers right now, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, you know, we all go into this business, you know, because we love, you know, love films or TV or whatever. And, you know, we expect there is a certain expectation and there's a certain need to kind of work long hours. And, you know, and we're paid enough to kind of to, to be uh, big and ugly enough to deal with a certain amount of that. It's it's the kind of it's the relentlessness of it and the kind of the lack of kind of give and take that needs to change, I think, is I'm really happy to work really super hard on things um, if I feel valued. Um, and part of feeling valued is when someone says to you, I can see that you've got an issue and I'm going to help you come, uh, overcome that. Before we wrap up, one last question. What's next for you? Now, knowing all of the things you do about this previous company and the conversation we've had today, what's next for you? Where are you going to go from here? Um, well, on a, on a personal level, um, I'm looking at kind of therapy options because I was doing therapy before um, and uh, that sort of came to an end. Um, and now I'm sort of looking at, yeah, sort of self-help things. Um, I'll probably have a chat with you about your uh, programs <laughs> because... Uh, that dialogue uh, is always open. Yeah, because that's something we've discussed about on email before. And it's something I'd really like to do. And uh, sort of professionally, I've got a feature I'm doing soon. I've got another one that's coming out. I've got an interview for a big... British TV series 
uh, coming up. So fingers crossed, you know, things are things are looking up. But um, and also like over here, our lockdown is starting to end. We can go out into the sunshine. So yeah, I'm I'm feeling pretty positive about things. Yeah, so I'm all right. Well, I'm glad to hear that with everything that's transpired recently, there are more opportunities in front of you, and you're feeling optimistic rather than oh man, like I can't believe I shared that Twitter post. My career is over because that's what most people have in their heads. If I share this, my career is over and you're proof positive that if anything, you're going to have so many good things to come to you because of this open vulnerability than had you just hidden it. It is funny. I've had a lot of lovely people contact me and it has heartened me. And I still kind of feel maybe I'm just, I was just too stupid to not realize the effect it would have on me. But, but I'd rather, I guess I'd rather be unemployed and honest than sort of live a lie, I suppose. And you know, not everyone feels that way, but I'm sort of pathologically honest, uh, and I can't, uh, I can't pretend. Uh, you know, I, I don't have a poker face, um, and so, uh, so I'm. You know, ultimately, I think I'm, I'm glad. If nothing else, I got an extra four hundred um, Twitter followers, and that's what's important in life, isn't it? How many isn't followers it? you have? Followers and likes. It's all about the followers and likes. If you if you're going to be anything in life that's worthwhile, it's being an influencer that gets more exactly. followers than four, all the likes in the world. That's what the world is all about. L- little hits of dopamine uh-huh. every time that counted as ticks up. And that's yes. Uh, so yeah, for so anybody that's, that's listening. Basically. Your self-worth should be tied to your number of followers and the number Absolutely, of likes yeah. you get on a daily basis. If you're not uh, not feeling good about yourself, social media is the best place to be for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Really it's funny because we're at least recording this uh, the, the day after April Fool's Day. So yes. belated April Fool's, all BS. Um, but I, I, the if there was ever a way to close it, I just I want to hammer this point home that you just said. It's, I mean, a brilliant quote. I would rather be unemployed and honest than living a lie. Accepting that and living that, I think you're going to find is going to help you manage your mental health and your anxiety a lot going forwards. That was, that was once I started to accept that as well, even though it makes life a little bit more challenging at times and it makes decisions more difficult, being willing to accept that I would rather continue to be honest to myself and my capabilities than lie about them just for the sake of employment. That's what leads to unhappiness and discontentment and burnout. So that that's that's a huge, huge lesson, I think, for everybody to take away from this. Well, I'm glad I've somehow helped. And actually, it's been nice. You know, all these people have contacted me and, you know, they've said to me, you know, just by you saying that has helped them. And, you know, that was a sort of unexpected you know, byproduct, but that has heartened me a little bit, I think, is that if nothing else, I've been able to help a few people feel a bit better about themselves. And, you know, how often does social media do that? So Exactly, which is essentially the how my entire business model came about. I was just writing and podcasting just because I needed to get it off my chest and realize, you know what? I'd rather spend my days empowering people and making them feel better and providing them value than just trying to earn all the accolades and the money and the credits all by myself. And here I am today. So that uh, that could be a very valuable realization for you down the road as well. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So that having been said, if somebody is listening to this and they are inspired by your story, they want to connect with you, they want to find you on social media, like what's the best way if somebody says, I need to talk to Jim or learn more about him, how do they do so? Best way is on Twitter, really. Um, It's um, at I am Jim Page. I'm on Facebook as well, uh, Jim Page Editor. You can have a look at my work on my website, jimpage.co.uk, although at the moment it's down because I'm sort of updating it, but hopefully by the time this comes out, it'll be back up again. Um, But yeah, I am Jim Page on Twitter or Instagram. My DMs are open. I'm always happy to have a chat with people. Uh, I do a bit of mentoring with students as well. So if there's there's kind of younger people who might want a bit of advice or whatever, then, you know, get in touch. I love it. Uh, Well, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to chat with me today. This was, uh, I knew that this was going to be a good one, but I had a feeling that you were going to be willing to to go deep and uh, provide some really good introspection and you did all that more. So I'm super happy that we were able to make this happen. And again, I applaud you for having the courage to be honest about your situation, which empowers other people to feel like they can do the same. I think that's really valuable. So I I really thank you for doing that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you, uh, you bringing me on board. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well.
One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.